When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every investor in the world wants to catch the wave of the next big trade. There's no time machine to go back and buy Amazon in 2013 or Apple in 2009. But what we can do is talk to the world's best traders about their next big buy. Join me, Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners, as we do exactly that on The Next Big Trade. I'm unabashed advocate of nuclear. I think it's a vital resource, a vital uh, means of energy going forward for humanity, um, in addition to a very compelling investing case as well. Welcome to The Next Big Trade. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this week, I'm speaking to Justin Hewn, uh, the founder and publisher at Uranium Insider. Justin, a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you as well, Harry. Thanks for having me on. So I, I was going through, uh, you know, I was basically cyber stalking you and I saw that you had a farm and a seed growing business. Um, tell, tell me about that and how you, how your interest in uranium came about. Uh, indeed, I, I did have a small certified organic farm that I operated with a friend. Um, it has nothing to do, I think, with the uranium thesis, but um, you know, at, at the core of my being, I care deeply about sustainability. And um, when my friends and I started this farm, this was in 2008, um, it was it was just kind of on a whim. I was an avid gardener. I was very passionate about permaculture. I was very passionate about um, just kind of getting into the, the deep in the weeds of what actually is sustainable and what does that word mean. So we started this farm in a very ideological manner. It was just over an acre, very small in terms of farms. Um, and we were actually farming by hand. We wanted to see what could we produce with our own human power. Um, we eventually did get a, a large, uh, like a large walk behind tractor. It's basically like a like a rototiller on steroids, but it has an actual tractor PTO for different implements. And but over the years, we built up. Um, we built up. We did, had a CSA, community supported agriculture program, where people would pay us on a monthly basis to come pick up food. And uh, we started a seed company. We wanted to kind of um, see what we can do in terms of uh, kind of closing the circle of sustainability. So our inputs obviously were fertilizer and gasoline for the for the walk behind tractor but um the seeds were a very important part of it and that kind of uh that was a, a passion project it's still i'm still a very avid gardener i have a large backyard garden i still grow and save seeds um i i do have a, a really kind of uh vivid memory while i was farming still at the time of when fukushima happened um and at that time i really you know nuclear was just not on my radar whatsoever and it was really scary in the headlines, especially since I knew nothing about it. And the headlines, you know, the mainstream news media is always going for clicks and, and eyeballs and tends to go towards the fear narrative as much as possible, regardless of the subject matter. And so I was really freaked out about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is just one and there's 400 something of these in the world. Um, oh, man, we're screwed. So that was kind of my 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 lead into to nuclear but it was an, a number of years passed and i got out of farming and i sold my my stake in the seed company many years ago um and then of course you know got much more interested over those years in investing and um and at the time when i was farming i was trading but it was more um you know kind of like on the side really i was doing mostly momentum trading um swing trading and, uh, and almost entirely based on technicals and so at some point in my process, the uranium thesis came to me. It actually happened, I think it was late 2016, which was the precise bottom for the commodity at just under $18 a pound. And that was through a podcast. Um, it kind of piqued my interest for some reason. And this idea of, of a sector that's totally hated, completely out of favor, still viable in terms of global energy mix, um, a growth sector, and everything was ultra cheap at the time. And that was a whole different way of investing or trading than I had undertaken prior to that moment. So 
I just kept digging into it, and and over the years, it became more and more interesting. You know, bringing bringing up to the present, and I'm an unabashed advocate of nuclear. I think it's a vital resource, a vital uh, means of energy going forward for humanity. Um, in addition to a very compelling investing case as well, which I'm sure we can get into. I remember Fukushima very well. In fact, I, but I, I still don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, is it Fukushima or Fukushima? Uh, I, I never really I, got I believe that. it's Fukushima Daiichi. Yeah. There we go. Um, I remember it, well, there are a number of reasons, um, but I, most of all, I kept on asking acquaintances, should I worry about having that much radioactive water injected into, into the Pacific? And the general consensus was the Pacific's very big. So it's hard for it to be meaningful. On the other hand, that's quite a lot of radioactive material. So I guess, if, I suppose you should worry if you're swimming in the seas off of northern Japan, you know, central Japan. Maybe you should. Otherwise, it's probably okay. Um, you know, it's funny you should mention that low is around uh, $18 a pound and how you, your interest was peaked about something that was probably pretty hated. I think I was talking to somebody, I think it was Rick Rule. My memory is not what it should be, so I, I'm not going to guarantee who this was. Um, but he mentioned the strongest trading signal he's ever come across was when you don't just get people disagreeing with a, a thesis, you get them actively kind of viscerally hating you for suggesting this idea. How dare you suggest uranium's a trade? It's terrible. It's like, why would you care that much? It's, you know, it must be a core belief that I'm, I'm infringing. Yeah, that, that's interesting coming from him. I mean, you, you have to understand, which I'm sure you do, kind of the historical context for Rick. Um, oh, no, I, I definitely do not. You, his performance you, in the previous bull market. So he probably, he, he had such a big win in the previous bull market that he was probably waiting patiently for years and years and years to rinse and repeat. <laughs> so so for him, you know, seeing wealth destroyed from 2011 to 2016, 2017 in uranium, it certainly garnered that type of response. Yeah. You know, your first big P&L is always formative. And unfortunately for me, my first big P&L was in the bond bear market of 94. Talk about like outing yourself as really old, but you know, these things can happen. Um uh, and it's it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing because you're constantly trying to replicate this. I'm really bearish and it's going to make me a lot of money. And it never works, right? That isn't how this thing works. Um, and it's taken me years to figure out that subconsciously I was looking for another nice bear market to get it right. Because it's one thing to get a trade right, but it's another thing to get it right when everyone else has got it wrong. <laughs> so much more satisfying. And the only thing is, You'd hope that money was its own reward, wouldn't you? Because a lot of people feel that money's its own reward. So anyway. That's a good point. Um, I often say that I think having a really big win in trading early on in your career is one of the worst things that can happen. Um, because it, it really gives you, and not saying this is the case for you, it definitely was the case for me. I remember one of my first real big wins was a, was like a short dated call option uh, around call option trade around uh, earnings. I do zero of that. I don't do that any longer, but I made a really big win and it gave me a super false sense of confidence in terms of my abilities to, to trade options and, and to make uh, macro bets on, on earnings expectations like that at, at the time, at least. But yeah, uh, certainly big wins can, can, can frame the way that you look at the markets following that win. And that can really influence behavior a lot, uh, sometimes not in the best ways. So we should probably get onto the meat and potatoes of the discussion. Um, talk us through your investment thesis. So the investment thesis has definitely grown and shifted since that 2016, late 2016 moment when it first came to me, you know, the original thesis was, this is a sector that is set to grow about 1% per year, you know, maybe a little bit more going out towards the end of the next decade at the time, which is now, um, it's, uh, around 10%, just under 10% of the global energy mix. It's actually a vital um, source of electricity that is totally overlooked. 
But the real big bet was the commodity was trading for $18 a pound. And the marginal cost of production was probably at the time in the 50s, you know, $50 a pound plus. Um, so you had uh, just an absolute long-term bear market. It was a super, super contrarian bet. So it was, it was, it was basically a bet on something going from absolutely terrible and hated to simply bad. And and <laughs> now, hang on a second. So um, I studied economics. The marginal cost of production is if if your marginal cost of production is below the actual price, the marginal amount produced is, is going to be near zero, right? You're not going to produce that. So why were people still producing if their marginal cost of production is 50 bucks and the actual price they're getting is uh, 18 so leading up to that point in time, a number of mines were coming offline that were higher producing mines. So you had um, you had Cameco uh, shut down Rabbit Lake in Saskatchewan. Uh, eventually in 2018, they shut down MacArthur River. Um, a lot of producers were produced into long-term contracts. So the spot price of uranium was trading $18 a pound. But the very few primary producers are producing and then selling into the spot market. They're selling into legacy contracts that they had signed at previous higher prices. So that's kind of the primary short answer of that question. Um, but you also have, you know, uh, during periods where the, the commodity was trading at higher prices when all of this capital was invested to develop projects and projects come online and, and, and those producers lock in those contracts so they keep producing. Um, of course, there's producers that were producing very, very low. And some of those uh, producers at the time were, were at or below that cost of production. You know, that was primarily in Kazakhstan where, you know, their cash costs are in the teens. You know, they're, they're fully allocated producing costs are more like now probably in the mid thirties. If you're, if you're calculating in the dividend that Zadaprom pays and, and all of the supply chain costs that have gone way up and et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, there was still a lot of over, overproduction. So, and then you also still had a lot of secondary supply um, into the middle of the last decade that com was coming from the megatons to megawatts program, downblending, um, you know, nuclear warheads and into usable uranium for for peaceful nuclear. That went on until 2013, and you had a ramping up of enrichment capacity, especially in Russia. And and so, when you had excess enrichment capacity, that actually was a source of of natural uranium. Um, I can explain that more in depth later if you want, but but really just kind of giving a frame of reference for the setup into the lows of 2016 for the commodity. For the equities, some some equities bottomed around the same time, some bottomed in March 2020. Um, but for the most part, the bottom was somewhere in that ballpark between 2017 and 2020. Um, so we had a, a massive oversupply, and that primarily came from the fallout from Fukushima. So you obviously had Fukushima hit sentiment negatively, right? So the stock sold off on that news as they would. Um, it stayed negative for a short period of time, started to recover. And then the news came that Japan was shutting down all of their nuclear reactors. And that came, I believe, within weeks of the actual accident. Um, so that was about 10% of global demand. This is 54 reactors. All of those were shut down in short order over the next 12 months. Um, you had Germany follow suit and say they were going to phase out nuclear and they shut down about half of their fleet over the next few years. And so what we had is basically a, a big hit to demand. Meanwhile, supply kept coming on. And not only that, the Kazakhs were ramping at the time they were, they were state owned, hundred percent state owned. They're now partially public because that's a problem. Um, so you had a state owned entity with a, with a vastly depreciating, uh, national currency, the Kazakh Tenge, uh, producing, producing in Tenge and selling in dollars into um, an oversupplied market and selling into the spot market, selling to traders, et cetera, at a price that they could actually profit from, from because of that uh, currency arbitrage and because of their low cost of production. So we're talking hundreds of millions of pounds of overproduction from the previous decade. And this is why just the market just was terrible for the equities and for the commodity from 2011 until, you know, the bottom. Um, so really this this basically originated as a contrarian bet that that oversupply would eventually be worked through um macarthur river shut down paladin shut down langer heinrich i believe uh, a year or two before that um we had rabbit lake shut down we had uh leading into covid which comes a little bit later but finally we've, we were seeing a relatively balanced market at least when you took a snapshot on a year-over-year -year basis not necessarily in terms of still some oversupply 
But that oversupply took a long time to work through. So we needed an actual supply deficit, which pretty much began in 2018 with MacArthur shutting off and Cameco buying uranium to fulfill their contracts instead of producing it. And that had a big swing. That worked through a lot of this above ground mobile inventory, just overhanging supply. A lot of trader activity. You had what's called carry traders where they would actually sign shorter term contracts, like two, three, four year contracts with utilities go out into the spot market, buy uranium, add their cost of capital, add you know interest, whatever it might be, and fulfill those contracts. And those carry traders work through a lot of that material as well. So it took a, a number of years. Um, so that was the original thesis. Growth sector hated, big contrarian bet, commodity well below the cost of production, the average cost of production. And we we're betting on the commodity going higher. And it did, you know, that was the bottom. Um, it's now trading at about 50 bucks a pound, maybe slightly above long-term prices right around that same uh, same level. Um, and so the commodity has appreciated quite well. A lot of the equities have as well since the bottom. Um, but in between that basic core thesis, which was essentially a bet on this um, supply and demand discrepancy, it takes a very long time for mines to come back online that are in care and maintenance, let alone um, you know, bring greenfield projects into, into production. And so looking out into the future then and now, we see a really big supply deficit and we see the conditions for, um, you know, what is essentially happening right now is kind of like a nuclear renaissance we've had over the last couple of years, just this uh, big crisis in terms of energy, especially in Europe. Um, we've seen skyrocketing prices for coal, natural gas. This is hitting places um, like Europe and Japan really, uh, really in a really big way. Um, the United States is not not as much of a way, but it's still there. We've seen bipartisan support of nuclear in the United States, growth of nuclear in Europe, um, shutdowns uh, delayed and deferred, life extensions for plants uh, in multiple countries, and then China's going gangbusters on on building nuclear. So, the thesis has only gotten better. We had COVID disrupt uh, production for a period of time. And now this year, of course, with the war in Ukraine has essentially created a bifurcated market for the commodity. That's kind of a whole can of worms we can get into if you want, but really it's essentially this core supply and demand deficit with a growth of nuclear going out towards the end of the decade and beyond. The commodity still needs to go up substantially to get to that marginal level of production, which, you know, in 2016 was in the 50s. Now we're talking probably the 80s due to inflation and what has happened since then. So the thesis has only really, it's it's really grown and progressed in a lot of ways and a lot of things that um, honestly, we would never have bet on back in 2016, 2017, 2018, that there would be a full on kind of nuclear renaissance that we'd see this, this war, um, that we would have, you know, the environmental left starting to embrace nuclear. It's, it's, there's a lot of things have fallen into place. Um, so what would you, what are you looking at now as a price target per pound, for example? I think right now a price target per pound is probably 90 to a hundred dollars. And that essentially is based on a recognition of where supply needs to get to in terms of annual supply uh, production numbers to reach a balanced market and what projects could actually hit that balanced mark and when those projects will come online and at what price. So we're talking about projects like uh, Bannerman Zitango, for example. This is uh, a couple hundred million pounds. It's huge. It's in Namibia. Um, it's very low grades. But it's a really big resource, and that's one of the mines that going out towards the end of the decade is likely going to have to come into production in order to balance the market, assuming that nuclear continues on the path that it that it is right now and it looks to be. Um, and so, you know, to I think their last um, their last uh, PEA, if I recall correctly, they were uh, looking at seventy five dollar a pound uranium, if I recall correctly, um, and that was close to two years ago. So these sorts of uh, marginal projects are looking at, you know, 85 plus dollars a pound uranium. And that that's just based on supply and demand economics. That has nothing to do with the actual financial players in the market and the spot market and the manipulation, let's say, or the influence on the spot price of uranium that could happen from um, buyers that aren't even nuclear utilities. So from traders and, of course, from financial entities such as Sprott and the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which is a whole nother whole nother element to this thesis that 
you can't even really model, you know, nobody can model what they expect SPUT to buy next year, SPUT, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, what they expect to buy in 2023. You cannot model that. Um, but we know it's going to be something. And that has everything to do with financial flows, which are far more difficult to predict than even the very convoluted and complicated uranium market. So we can crunch those supply and demand numbers, but we can't model out secondary demand. How much money, how much money is in the Sprott Trusts now? Oh gosh, their nav I think is something like three point four, three point five billion. Um, they've raised almost a billion dollars this year, and they've purchased forty million pounds since their ATM went live last August. So it's fifteen months, forty million pounds of uranium they purchased. Yeah, three point six billion Canadian. So it's they're, they're a behemoth, and and nobody really knows. I mean, they've been kind of hamstrung over the last five six months because of market conditions. They haven't purchased a lot. They haven't raised a lot. And even then, they purchased you know twenty million pounds this year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So you, you mentioned a bifurcation of the market. I think I know what you mean, um, but rather than me guess, <laughs> it's better if you say. Sure, I should correct myself. I think they've purchased around 17 million pounds this year, but about 40 million pounds since, um, since last August. So the bifurcation of the market, this is something that is has historical precedent. There was actually a bifurcated market, kind of Russia, non-Russia in the 90s. Um, and this has, is now happening again due to the war in Ukraine and the, the uh, self-imposed restrictions that are happening amongst the Western nuclear utilities. So the nuclear utilities that exist in the, in the West, let's say the OECD countries, is about 70% of global nuclear energy production. Um, the disjunct there is that the Russians control about 40% of the enrichment market and about 35% of the conversion market. So the, the nuclear fuel cycle in a really brief kind of layman's nutshell um, is there's a number of services involved in getting the mined uranium into a fabricated fuel rod that'll go into a nuclear reactor. And really quickly, that's the mined uranium that comes from underground mining, open pit mining, or ISR mining, in situ recovery mining, which is, you know, uh, injection and, with, and extraction wells. And that's how the Kazakhs mine is ISR, um, as well as the Uzbeks. Now, uh, that mined uranium goes through a, a slight processing to turn it into yellow cake, uranium octoxide, U308. That is then converted into a gas, um, uranium hexafluoride, also known as UF6, and it has to be converted into a gas in order to be enriched in uh, centrifuges. So the enrichment process takes that UF6 and it spins it and separates the isotopes, the U U235, U238 isotopes. There's an ever so slight difference in mass. And that U235 isotope is in natural uranium, which is also what UF6 is referred to, is at about 0.7% U235. And it has to be enriched up to about 4.6% for the average light water reactor. So that process of enrichment spins that material um, to increase the level U235. Then it gets uh, deconverted and uh, fabricated into nuclear fuel, uh, the enriched uranium. So in that whole process, depending on where and how it's mined, the proximity to the services of conversion and enrichment, and then fuel fabrication takes anywhere from 12 to 24 months. So if it's mined in Kazakhstan and converted in France and enriched in France and then fabricated in France or, or somewhere in the EU, um, that might take 12 months, maybe a little bit longer. But typically, we're talking around 18 months. So what's happening right now is even though the United States, the EU, um, and most countries in the West have not actually literally banned Russian uranium products, from uh, coming into their countries. The Western nuclear utilities, to, to as of now, are still not voluntarily signing new contracts with Russia for conversion, for enrichment, for fabricated fuel, or for U-308. They, do, they also provide, you know, mine a little bit of uranium. There's a couple of mines in Russia. They have joint ventures in Kazakhstan. 
But long story short, Russia is a massive player in the market. And that big disjunct has to do with the bulk of nuclear energy production happening in the West and the, and the largest player in the conversion and enrichment markets existing in Russia. So this bifurcated market has resulted in uh, a number of uh, big changes in the nuclear fuel cycle. And the biggest changes we've seen so far has been the big, very large increase in pricing for conversion UF6 enrichment and EUP or enriched uranium product, the, the end product of enrichment. Um, and so those prices have all gone up really, really big. They're up, all of those elements are up over 100% this year. They've more than doubled this year. Um, so conversion is at an all-time high right now. And enrichment is getting there. So what happens for utilities is the way that they buy uranium, um, to speak generally, is that they will go in and secure those services first. And especially with this bifurcated market right now. So um, we're seeing nuclear utilities in the West seek out conversion and enrichment contracts from Western providers of those services. So that's Urenco and Arano for enrichment and Arano and Cameco for conversion. And so, and what they do is they, they secure that first because when you secure an enrichment contract, it has a number of elements that dictate a calculation for how much of the feedstock that you need. And as a nuclear utility, you have to provide the feedstock for these contracts. So if you're signing a conversion contract, you have to go buy the uranium and send to the converter. If you're signing an enrichment contract, you have to get that UF6. And whether you buy UF6 from, uh, from the spot market or from a converter or an enricher, or you buy U308 and put it through the conversion process, you still have to come up with UF6 and send it to the enricher for this contract for enrichment. So these contracts have uh, a, num a number of elements in this calculation. And one of those is um, the percentage of U235, the, or the percentage of enrichment, the how much you need in terms of KGU of enriched product. And what is the tails assay? I know this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but it's important to understand this concept and to grasp. We like weeds. Yeah, yeah. So the tails assay is basically the amount of U235 that's left over in the tails or the waste material from that enrichment process. So when there has been a lot of excess enrichment capacity, reduced demand for enrichment, um, an oversupplied market, the enrichers could uh, spin that material down more to a lower tails assay. So basically they're squeezing more material out of the feedstock and less of the good stuff in the tails, right? So they're running tails assays, let's say 0 0.18, 0 0.19, maybe 0 0.2 over the past three, four, five years. Um, this allowed them to do something called underfeeding. So they signed contracts previous years for enrichment that dictated a certain tails assay. Let's say it was 0.2 and they had excess capacity at the time that they had enriched that material for that contract. So what they would do is they would spin that material that the utility provided for them to them for that contract down to a lower tails assay than was dictated in the contract. So they would have excess feedstock excess UF6, they literally would underfeed the centrifuge. And that underfeeding um, happened uh, at enrichers around the world uh, in, in a very big way over the last decade to the tune of 20 plus million pounds globally, probably closer to 25 million pounds of secondary supply coming from the enrichers because there was so much excess enrichment capacity. It's an important concept to understand because what's happening right now is the Western enrichment and, and Western enrichers are already raising those tails assays significantly. So we're already hearing that uh, the Urancos and the Iranos of the world that are in the enrichers in the West have raised their tails assays up 0 0.24, 0 0.25. And that swing from 0 0.18, 0 0.2 to 0 0.24, 0 0.25 is about a 15% increase in demand for uranium. So now the nuclear utilities in the West that are signing enrichment contracts with Western enrichers are signing contracts at much, much higher tails assays. So what that means is that that shoots out a number. I need this much at this level of enrichment at this tails assay that kicks out a number of how much UF6 they have to provide. There's no UF6 on the market right now. So they have to go buy uranium, run it through the fuel cycle. That's the process that's taking place essentially in the background right now. So the tails assay uh, variable, what's, what's the factor? It must be a cost associated with dropping the tails assay down or or raising it up to to make it because otherwise why would it move at all 
So is it a higher energy cost that you, it just, you have to do more processing? You have to run these things multiple times more? What, what's the downside? Well, the downside is that the enrichers will essentially, um, I, I mean, really the downside to running, running that low is that um, you, you end up utilizing less material, right? So I guess this is an upside for enrichers because they can, they can sell that material into the spot market. Absolutely. But if it was only upside, they would always leave that variable as low as possible. So why would it be creeping up now? Because it's, it's actual supply and demand dictated. So now that there's demand coming to these Western enrichers in far greater volume than they, than they saw over the previous decade, they have no choice but to raise the tails assets because they have to kick out more material, material at the far end of that process at a faster period of time. So if you have excess capacity, you have essentially the time and the excess energy in the centrifuges to spin that material down further. Gotcha. And you now can do that and it leaves you with excess material. So now what we're actually seeing is we've actually heard that uh, Uranco is going into the market buying UF6. And they're doing this because they can sign contracts in the high 20s, like 0.28, 0.29-ish, um, for future enrichment contracts um, for the nuclear for with the nuclear utilities. That means that the utility signing that contract has to provide them with way more UF6 than they might even end up using at that time. And they make it up by charging uh, higher SWU costs. So SWU is separate of work unit. That's actually the cost of enrichment. And that price rises. So rising tails assays, rising cost of SWU, um, they make it up in, in price by charging more for that service. So they can, you know, they can dictate the prices of what they're charging for their services, what they're charging in SWU. But the actual tails assays determined by their capacity and the demand coming in, they they want to be able to sign those contracts, and and there's limited capacity. So I'm I'm quite struck by what you've described because it's less bullish for uranium than it is for the processing services uh, in the short of, term. Uh, in the short term, um, and I'm thinking to myself, who were the players? Who I mean. We, um, we never talk, well, we talk about individual stocks, but we don't recommend individual stocks because I'm still too good looking for prison. Um, okay, you might question that. But, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but um, uh, who, who are the players in this, in this enrichment field? Who, who are the guys who are, who are suddenly finding that demand for their services is, is flying? Well, unfortunately, Uranco and Arano are both private companies. So those are the big players. Um, there's a couple of other options. One is Centris. Um, they're an enricher in the United States. That's a little bit tricky because they historically have uh, produced a lot of their material using Russian feedstock. So they're in a little bit of a precarious situation, but they're also working with the uh, U.S. Department of Energy to establish um, HALU circuit for uh, uh, producing high assay, low enriched uranium for future advanced reactors. That's a whole other uh, rabbit hole. Um, you have uh, Silex, which is a um, Australian listed company that has a laser enrichment technology. And Cameco owns a minority stake in uh, global laser enrichment. They probably are going to increase that stake. They have the option to increase it. I believe it's to 70% ownership, which they probably will do. So Cameco has some exposure. They don't get a lot of credit for that exposure. Um, as far as conversion, there's only Cameco. So Cameco has the Port Hope conversion facility in Canada. And you're absolutely correct in the short term, what's happened. I mean, the, the U308 commodity, uranium is moving up as well. So that's clearly in an uptrend, you know, essentially from the bottom. And it continues to move higher. But the really big moves are happening in the fuel cycle. And this is how it always happens. You always have that big jump in price and demand um, for those uh, for those services first because you have to do that first. You have to know as a utility what your enrichment contracts is dictating for how much uranium you need to buy. You're, most of the time, you're not going to just go out and buy some random amount of uranium uh, making an assumption on what the tails assay is going to be in that enrichment contract. And that's what we're starting to see. So. So what, what we're seeing right now, we already have 106.5 million pounds in uh, uranium long-term contracts signed this year. This is the first year since 2012 that we've contracted more than 100 million pounds. So the past five, six, seven years, um, the the contracting for long-term contracting has been such low volume because the utilities have had to be, been able to make it up 
in uh, shorter term contracts with carry traders buying in the spot market, uh, off take agreements and inventory draws. So um, really what, what we're looking at here is that demand comes to the services first and then it comes to uranium and we're actually seeing that start to happen now. So it's actually not, it's, it's, it's a mathematical calculation. It's not theoretical. It's not, oh, eventually we'll see that demand may become, no, it, it has to because they have to buy the uranium to run through the fuel cycle to, to fulfill these contracts. So um, that's the demand that's coming. I honestly believe next year is going to be the first year since 2012 we'll see actual replacement rate contracting, which is an actual contracting in term contracts with producers by utilities in volumes at or greater than what the global nuclear utility fleet consumes on an annual basis, which is about 175 million pounds for this year. And I think that we'll see that next year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Now, What's happening with the so in in Europe with regard to uh, these nuclear facilities? Um, I spoke to uh, Alexander Starhill, who's a, a Swiss portfolio manager, um, and he made a number of points. I was sorry, it's a private conversation, um, but uh, he's he's on air in various places like Real Vision things. Um, and he's observed that we have this bigger problem in Europe where the energy supply system is uh, a little decrepit, has been underinvested in for God knows how long. And that's particularly true for the nuclear thing because nuclear, you know, not every, it's not popular. It's not universally popular everywhere. It certainly wasn't for the last 30 years. Um, there's a picture of Olaf Scholz um, with here uh, attending a demo uh, an anti-nuclear demo in Germany. I'm not sure it was nuclear power or it was nuclear weapons he's protesting against, but it's got no nuclear on the on the picture. Um, Germany is still it hasn't changed its mind. Those power stations are still off, right? So they have three remaining reactors that were planned to be decommissioned in December, and they have decided to keep to extend the lives of those plants until April. Of next year whether or not they'll extend them further from there i i'm not holding my breath with germany so the the absurdity of the situation um made me giggle I, uh, what was explained to me is that these plants are maybe 20 years old or something like that maybe 25 years old uh they're being switched off um the what instead uh, Germany will be relying on Belgian and French nuclear plants, uh, which might be 45 years old. Uh, and they're just across the border from Germany. So in terms of you know, environmental risks, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Um, but, you know, perhaps I'm not thinking about this right. But this issue is all about baseload capacity. And the problem in Europe this winter will be uh, what to do when you have cold, dark, uh, windless days. Um, if you have a, a cold, dark, windless stretch, there will not be enough base load capacity in Europe and you'll have to have some kind of electricity rationing. And that's, that's why it's a problem to, to have switched off these, these... They're not switched off, they're still available, but they're not being used for base load. They're going to be used, they're going to be, uh, be used uh, for uh, additional power uh, when needed. This, this is not going to work. Well, I mean, they'll still operate as base load as long as they're operating, um, essentially, because nuclear plants don't really cycle up and down very well. Uh, you know, they can cycle up down a few percentage points, uh, maybe 10% up, 10% down, but it doesn't happen quickly at like gas or coal does, um, which is why gas in particular um, and coal as well are, are great uh, bedfellows with renewables, um, ironically, because the renewables are intermittent and unless and until there's grid scale battery storage, the the, those cold, uh, dark, windless nights that you speak of, have, if, if people are going to have energy during those periods of time, it has to come from something that can run. And that's going to be gas or coal. So Germany 
the the positive thing with Germany is that it's become um, a, a perfect glowing example of what not to do. And, and this situation has highlighted that. And, and it's honestly, it's woken a lot of people up with regards to um, the, the positive attributes of nuclear and kind of the folly of a, of a grid that's majority um, run with renewables. It's, it's, it's been a, a big mess for Germany. They have one of the highest carbon intensity power grids in Europe. Um, and they, they on like right now, last week, there was a news story of uh, how they were, I'm tearing down, I think it was eight wind turbines because there was a coal deposit underneath them. And I saw that story. They wanted to extend the coal mine. <laughs> they're, yeah, so they're wonderful. expanding, <laughs> expanding uh, lignite coal uh, energy, which is the dirtiest of the dirty you know, options for, I mean, the dirtiest energy production. It's, uh, Germany is, is now a rich seam of irony. If you could power Germany on irony, they, they'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the nuclear thing is just sad. I mean, these reactors are in, are in prime shape. I mean, you could eat off the floor in these things. They're 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 beautiful. They're they're marvels of engineering, and it's truly unfortunate that they're going down this road. Um, truly unfortunate. So the they decommissioned three last year. My understanding is at least two of those could easily be brought back online. Um, a couple months ago, the energy minister in Germany, I'm forgetting the person's name off the top of my head stated that even if we wanted to extend these plants, we couldn't get the fuel in time. And uh, I think it was Westinghouse was like, oh, we've got the fuel for you. Yeah, yeah no worries. Go go for it. <laughs> uh, and so, but yeah, it's they're probably going to shut them down because uh, unfortunately, sometimes uh, political ideology wins over over. I, I think, yeah, I, I, the impression I got, and I don't really understand why, but the impression I got is these are long-standing manifesto commitments of the Green Party. And I'm guessing it was Harbeck, um, but not that he's economy more than me. But, yeah, that, that's why. But it just doesn't – the problem is this is a technical question more than an ideological question. And this doesn't seem to do what you'd want it to do. Um, so it just seems, like, dumb. But yeah. anyway, what do I yeah. know? Yeah. No, it's – I mean, to answer your previous question, the situation in Europe is is complex. So you have um, a country like Belgium, for example, that shut down a reactor prematurely to stick to their plans last month or maybe maybe two months ago. I think this is this the Dole 3 or 4. I apologize. I'm forgetting which one. And you actually had the energy minister of that country say, um, now we have one less nuclear weapons factory in Belgium. I mean, that was literally her words. Uh, and, and then a couple of weeks later, they decided to give life extensions to a couple more of their nuclear power plants. So I, I really, you just can't make this stuff up. France is an interesting example. They really, uh, they really planted their flag in nuclear a few decades ago, and it's worked out very well for them for the most part. Now, the previous decade... Um, earlier in the in the 20 teens, France had pledged to phase out nuclear, and they believed their goal was 2025 or 2030 to phase out nuclear. And so, for a number of years, they were underinvesting in the maintenance of their nuclear fleet, which was was at the time majority state owned um, EDF, and now is 100% state owned. And so, they that underinvestment has resulted in what we're seeing now, which is. Uh, a number of maintenance problems at a lot of their reactors. At some point this year, a few months ago, half of their fleet was offline due to maintenance issues. Half of the fleet. And they're 75% nuclear. And France is actually the largest exporter of electricity in the world. And that's much of that has to do with their robust nuclear fleet. But of course, uh, a couple of years ago, Macron kind of turned turned the tide and said, "No, we're going to keep our plants to the extent that we can, and in fact, we're going to build new nuclear." They have yet to break ground with new nuclear since that statement, but their intentions are to expand their nuclear fleet going out uh, into 2030 and beyond. And so, the a number of plants that were set to shut down in 2025 got 10-year life extensions earlier this year. Um, but uh, the, the EDF story and a number of these plants that are having maintenance outages, it just came at the, at the perfectly wrong time. And it goes to show you, like, you have to have that. Um, you, have to ha you have to be on top of the maintenance of, of these plants in order to have them up and running in the way that we'd all like them to see. So they're trying to get as many back online as they possibly can. Um, just news, news out today that a number of them that they thought would be back online next month, still going to take a couple more months into January, February. So it's a bit of a mess. Uh, 
The UK is aiming to expand nuclear. Poland is signing uh, MOUs with both Westinghouse and the South Koreans to establish their first nuclear power plants in Poland. Um, uh, Spain has some nuclear. It doesn't seem like they've uh, gone forward in, in new nuclear. Sweden's just elected a new kind of uh, right-leaning government that's wanting to get back into building new nuclear. And then this whole world of, of SMRs, uh, small modular reactors and advanced nuclears. Very exciting. There's a lot of countries in Europe that are um, coming around to, uh, to to setting up demonstration projects and, and signing LOIs and MOUs with a number of these SMR builders. So that that's an exciting potential future for Europe as well. So we should talk about the trading side of this. Um what is the optimal expression of this trade? What do you like as a way of putting this risk on if, if, if you're going to put it on? Sure. Well, I mean, for, for our newsletter purposes, you know, we, we have our own process of assessing the companies and we really find our sweet spot is, is real companies. That is to say companies that are or will be producing something meaningful in terms of cash flow and actually producing uranium. So we like to look at obviously management team that can get it done, jurisdictions that are supportive, um, you know, decent balance sheet, decent share structure, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course you have to look at grade of, of deposit. All of those things factor into that. Um, I think that if you aren't going to go for uh, like deep due diligence into specific companies, the best way to express it is probably in an ETF and or the commodity itself would be uh, you know, the most liquid and least risky would be uh, probably buying the spot vehicle just to give yourself exposure to the commodity itself without taking on individual minor risk. Um, good liquidity, uh, very, very good risk to reward, uh, in my opinion. Um, I think the downside here for the commodity is negligible compared to the upside potential. You're even having um, entities such as UXC, which is uh, probably the primary nuclear fuel consultant, they put out reports on a weekly basis and uh, very large reports quarterly that aggregate all of the data from the nuclear industry, um, report on prices throughout the fuel cycle, and their primary customers are utilities. And they have historically been very conservative. They're now saying we might not ever see $45 uranium again, and we will not be seeing uh, uranium with a three-handle. So if you consider that, the downside here is maybe 10 15 maybe 20% on some kind of strange washout for the commodity. The upside is probably at least a double. Um, and then probably URNM is, is, would be the recommended ETF uh, because it's a pure play, 100% invested in uranium companies, uranium mining companies, whereas URA has 70% uh, focused on uranium. And there's a number of other larger mining companies that are as a, part of, uh, a part of the URA ETF. The liquidity is probably better URA. There's better, um, a deeper options market with URA, but URNM and SPUT are probably the ways to play it. Of course, you can get far more leverage with individual mining companies, but that obviously takes um, much more due diligence to get to the bottom of things with that. Sure. Well, you definitely want the operational leverage of being long and efficient mining company. It's just tricky to figure out who's efficient. What can go wrong? Mm. Well, big, uh, big caveat here. It's a volatile sector. Uh, we always recommend to anyone make a rational allocation of your capital to the sector because it is so volatile, even without, uh, you know, real just random kind of exogenous events coming into the space, which tend to happen. What could go wrong? I think the biggest thing that could go wrong would be something that causes a massive um, reduction in demand. And that's the big thing that caused the previous bear market. Like I mentioned, the Fukushima, you know, obviously the, the, the event itself was, was not good for sentiment, but it really was the Japanese fleet coming offline that killed the market for a decade. That's what did it. And that had to do with demand destruction. And so barring demand destruction, I honestly think, you know, uh, even a nuclear accident, although it would be very bad for obvious reasons um, and it would not be good for sentiment and it would certainly cause a short-term washout for the stocks, no doubt, um, unless it triggered a hit to demand in the supply and demand situation and uh, modeling going out in the future remained relatively intact, we should still see a recovery, a further recovery in the commodity price. But that said, 
a nuclear accident is not something anybody wants. And that's always a risk. It's always a risk. It could happen at any time. That's why this sector is so volatile. That's why the sector uh, can be so attractive for people that like volatility. It's so small. When capital flows come in, the stocks just explode. Um, and so that's, and obviously, you know, people have a memory of the previous bull market and, and seeing stocks go from pennies to $10, you know, just, uh, just absolutely wild moves in such a small sector. What could go wrong? Um, I think, well, obviously I think the biggest thing is demand. So if China all of a sudden said, just kidding, um, we're going to slow down our build outs. They have 20 something reactors under construction right now. Uh, they have about 51, 52 gigawatts of nuclear capacity. They're shooting for 200 by 2035. So that's another, that's, let's see, that's another 150 new reactors. That's eight to 10 a year for the next 13 years for, for China alone. Um, and now that the Western demand is somewhat being de-risked by the fact that reactors are getting life extensions, that China, rather than China's build out sort of balancing out a reduction of nuclear in the West, now nuclear it's in the West is additive. Kind of, is, yeah. Yes, exactly. But really what could go wrong? I mean, obviously we're, we're right now kind of, um, uh, coupled with just generally lower liquidity kind of poor markets. And, and that's not something we can really get around. That's just is what it is right now. So if the markets continue to do this for an extended period of time without a big run in the uranium price, we could be coupled with the broad markets for a while longer. That's certainly possible. I wouldn't say that's wrong, but... I suppose they could. I imagine if the Chinese were to announce success in the nuclear fission project next week, this would probably be negative for uranium's uh, stock prices and... Fusion, for nuclear fusion fusion sorry yeah <clears throat> exactly yeah yeah few i mean fusion's exciting it's i i'd like to think that there's a future for it i i i do i mean i think that there's been a lot of advancements made in the last few years on fusion but um we believe that the market is going to move and the commodity is going to move based on the existing reactors in the world now um, let alone the new builds um, in the next few years prior to anything fusion becoming commercially viable and widespread. Well, one assumes fusion isn't turning up in the next 20 years, but perhaps I'm overly negative. Right. I mean, an announcement of fusion success could hurt sentiment for uranium stocks for a day or a week or whatever, but ultimately, you know, the, the long-term supply and demand fundamentals, I think, will, will win out in the end. Um, if people want to get more of you, where should they look? Uh, uraniuminsider.com is our website, and I'm relatively prevalent on Twitter, at Uranium Insider. You can find me um, either place. Excellent. Justin, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Harry. Thanks a lot for, it's been, uh, for having me on. It's been nice talking with you. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else.